Chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 5. Habakkuk complains, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. and He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Alleluia. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and give you praise for this day, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the rain. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into worship with your gathered body here this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can complain to you. And so, Lord, as we consider the complaints of one of your servants, Lord, and your answer, We pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts to understand and to believe, Lord, and open our ears to hear and our minds to comprehend what you have inspired in your word. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I was thinking as as Greg was, was reading through the psalm a moment ago and we were singing through it just how much it really connects to what we just read from Habakkuk, especially when he calls the Lord his rock here in verse 12. But So keep Psalm 71 in mind as we go through this today, because I think it was really quite interesting how well it connected up. But over the last two weeks, we, we have been working to answer this question, right? How is it okay for us to question God or to complain to God? And so we used Habakkuk really as a framework, which is why we're going through the whole book. But we looked at Job, and we looked at David, and we even looked at Jesus on the night before his passion, And we see that we can question God or even complain to God. 
as long as we arrive at an appropriate destination, which is the destination of humility and repentance and resting in God's sovereignty. But we also concluded that while we, we, can, in, we can indeed bring our complaints and questions to the Lord, we should not be surprised when and how he chooses to answer. Because God is sovereign, and God will ultimately work out all things according to his purposes and in his timing. And that really was the issue for Habakkuk, especially last week as we started this journey through his griping and complaining. But here we see it's because God's response to his initial complaint was not what Habakkuk was wanting. It wasn't what he was looking for, nor was it one that he was expecting. Remember last week in the first few verses of chapter 1, Habakkuk complains because Judah is full of violence. Matthew Henry, we saw last week, said that Judah was as violent as the world was before the flood. That's, that's pretty violent. But it was full of violence. It was full of destruction. It was full of wickedness. And, and Habakkuk is frustrated with his people, but he's also really trying to make sense of why the Lord God had not responded to his shouts for help. He starts there in verse 2. He says, I'm crying to you for help. How long will I cry and you not answer? And so he's wondering why God had remained silent or, as we read, that he had remained idle towards the wickedness of Judah to the point that God's law, said Habakkuk, God's law had become paralyzed and justice had become perverted. But then God responds, as we saw last week. He responded and he said that, you know what, I'm going to use the wicked Babylonians as an instrument of my righteous judgment. So if the law no longer holds any sway over the hearts of the Judeans, then and if your justice is perverted, then the Babylonians are going to be worse because they are a law unto themselves, and their justice comes from their worldview, comes from themselves, because their God is their might and their strength and their conquering power. And so we come to this second complaint then from Habakkuk, and we see that his complaint is built out of what God just responded with earlier in chapter 1. And it's also, again, it's really unexpected. So what we see, is, though, is that as we look at this, Habakkuk, he starts to, to veer. He starts to take the exit, so to speak, on this road trip towards the right destination of humility and repentance and rest. But he, as we'll see, he somewhat humbles himself, and he somewhat rests in God's sovereignty, but he's still frustrated. He's still confused. And so beginning there in the first half of verse 12, because verse 12 is actually kind of long, but it breaks up nicely in half. He says this, he starts, God finishes and tells him Babylon is coming, and, and Habakkuk just says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. And this is a statement, really it's an odd statement, because it is a mixture of both disbelief from what he's heard, but also complete and utter faith and trust in God. And we see this really in a couple of ways. Habakkuk, we understand, he's struggling, right? He's struggling to accept what he has heard from God. And if you wanted to reword at least this verse, at least this half of the verse, for a modern reader, you could almost re reword it this way. He hears God's response, and then he just goes, wait a minute. That's not what I wanted. That's not what I was looking for. You've got to be wrong. It's because remember, he complains to God initially based upon what he knows about God, how God had revealed himself throughout Scripture so far. And in Exodus, we see that God had promised that he would not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so in his disbelief in Habakkuk, he boldly questions God's response of judgment in this verse. And he asks, hang on, you're going to do what? Babylon is more wicked than we are. 
But, but notice, notice how he words this response. He starts here, he says, Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? Which is how we see that this is an odd statement of both disbelief and belief because even though he is in complete disbelief over God's use of Babylon, he also, this question also makes a profound statement of his trust in God and his faith in God because he knows that God is eternal. He knows that God is everlasting. But notice here, he starts this, he uses God's covenant name when he responds to God in this case. He uses the name of Yahweh, which is a sign of his faith and trust because he knows that not only is he part of God's covenant people, but that Judah are God's covenant people. And so Habakkuk is just trying to process this response from Yahweh because Yahweh has responded that he is going to send the wicked Babylonians to judge his covenant people. So Habakkuk responds by calling upon God using his covenant name, the name that he had revealed to his covenant people. He trusts God and he uses his name. He says, my Lord and my God, my Holy One. Calvin wrote here, though, he said, he said we need to understand this, this initial reply in a couple of ways. He said, this isn't just him simply declaring his faith. He is declaring his faith. But he's also challenging God in this initial first half of verse 12. And so this should be read as an emphatic question. So he says we should read it this way. Instead of, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He said we should read this as, are you not our God? Are you not Yahweh, our Lord, our God, the one that has called us out of slavery in Egypt to be your covenant people? So really what this does is this helps us understand. We can't break this down too much, right? We need to hold those two statements in In tandem, we need to hold them in contrast to one another because we see that Yahweh my God and we shall not die cannot be separated. Calvin says, he says, we shall not die because we are under the protection of Yahweh. Calling on Yahweh is an understanding of his covenant call upon his people. He's not going to kill them is basically what Calvin is saying, that Habakkuk is saying. He said God had adopted these people as his own. They were his chosen. They were his favored possession. And so Habakkuk is confident in God's promises that God will preserve them regardless of the wickedness of Babylon. And so with this one statement, Habakkuk is proclaiming that while judgment may come, Yahweh will not completely wipe them out because of his covenant promises to them. Because Yahweh is a God who keeps his promises. And so we see that he's at least trusting that the Lord will preserve a remnant from this judged, uh, from this judged generation. Even though Babylon is going to capture them and take the land and take the majority of them away as slaves, he is trusting in God's promises, even though exile is their judgment for sin. And so even though he trusts him, though, Habakkuk, he's still confused. He's, I'm trusting you, Lord. I know you're my God. But I still got to ask you a couple of questions because I don't know what you mean by this response. And so he continues through the rest of verse 12 and verse 13. He says, O Lord, here again, Yahweh, Yahweh, you have ordained Babylon as a judgment. And you, O Rock, we saw that in Psalm 71, you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you either look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And so what he says here, I think, really teaches us something important as we approach God and our questions and concerns and complaints and frustrations. 
Habakkuk is really showing us that we can rest and trust in God's sovereignty, but that doesn't mean we will always completely comprehend his purposes or his understanding. We have to rest in his promises regardless if we understand what he's doing. And that's okay, right? It's still okay to be concerned. It's still okay to be frustrated. But he's telling us we still need to rest in our covenant God. And notice, again, in the second half of verse 12, he again addresses God with his covenant name of Yahweh. But at this point, it's not just confessing his faith in Yahweh. It's also adding to his confusion to God's initial response. If Yahweh is their God, and if Yahweh, as he's already said, is holy, and if Yahweh has promised them that they were his precious covenant possession, then how could Yahweh use such a wicked instrument for judgment? The Babylonians were so wicked and so violent and so destructive that initially here Habakkuk is understanding God has ordained them. They're so violent. God has ordained them for their annihilation, not for their, not for their reproof. Because he uses the word reproof here. Because reproof comes with an understanding that there could be reconciliation at some point. There could be salvation at some point. But Babylon is so wicked and so violent and so destructive that they are a judgment of extinction in Habakkuk's mind. And so in verse 13, he rephrases his initial complaint based upon this new information from God about Babylon. And so he begins here with two statements about what he knows about God from how God has revealed himself. He says, Yahweh, you are pure in eye, and you cannot look upon evil. So, Yahweh, how can you look upon the evil that is the Babylonians? And how can you be silent when they swallow up your covenant people? To put it another way, God, if you cannot even look upon unrighteousness and evil, then how are you going to look upon the unrighteousness and evil of Babylon for the sake of judgment? Right? How is this justice? So it's no wonder Habakkuk is frustrated. Right? It's no wonder he's confused. Because it just doesn't make sense. And so it comes down to this. Yahweh, in this moment, for Habakkuk, Yahweh appeared. I stress that word. He appeared to be doing the exact opposite of what Habakkuk had believed and understood about God his entire life. I imagine we all feel this way from time to time. But he also calls God his rock there in verse 12, which as we see in Psalm 71, God is the rock upon which our hope and our salvation lie. So Habakkuk still understands that Yahweh is his God. Regardless of what happens, Yahweh is where his salvation lies. But as he goes through the next few verses, just in case God had forgotten how wicked the Babylonians really were, Habakkuk takes a moment and presumes to tell God, here's how bad Babylon really is. Because Habakkuk had heard of Babylon, not just from what God had revealed about it, but he had heard of Babylon. If he's paying attention any, to any type of international relations going on in that region of the world at the time, it's pretty obvious who Babylon is. But Habakkuk here, he reminds God of how poorly Babylon treats the nations that it conquers. And starting in verse 14, he starts using this figurative language to describe really his issue at the end of the day of God's use of wicked Babylon. He says, you make, Lord God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So, Lord, you are creator. But you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler, regardless of whether or not all of mankind has 
honored Yahweh as God, which we understood last week. Babylon had not. Regardless of that, we have always, every one of us, have lived out our image of God in us, the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here, at this point in history, Babylon had grown massive, both in people and militarily. It was huge. It was strong. And so while acknowledging God's sovereignty here, Habakkuk is confused by God's response because he's asking, had Babylon grown so big and so powerful, God, have they gotten this big that they could exercise control over you? Or has your creature now become too unruly for creator? Right? Again, you can feel his frustration. But then he goes on here in verse 15, and he starts using the image of a dragnet. So in the face of the wickedness of Babylon, Judah, Judah is going to be as helpless, he says, and defenseless as a fish on a hook or a fish trapped in a net and dragged out of the water. Now, a dragnet, for anybody that has only seen the old cop show, right, with Henry Morgan and, and I forget the other guy that was in it, the main guy that was in it, but yes, thank you. So a dragnet, its name implies its function, right? It is a net that is thrown into the water, it's weighted on the bottom, and has buoys on the top to keep it afloat, right? A fish, this, is, this is ancient fishing 101, right? You throw the net in the water, it sinks to the bottom, it's dragged around with ropes, the fish are trapped, they go in a panic, they can't swim above or below it. Most of the time they're going to swim the other direction if you've ever had a pet fish and you try to catch them in the net, right? They go the other way. And they get caught, right? So then they're dragged out of the water either into a boat or onto the shore. That's how a dragnet works, is literally drug out of the water. But if we were to reword this for today, we could reword it as, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Babylon had grown so big and so powerful that coming to Judah and overtaking Judah and Jerusalem would be like shooting fish in a barrel. It is going to be easy. But note how this applies to Habakkuk's complaint. How could a loving creator allow this to happen to his covenant chosen people? He had called them out of all of the peoples of the earth. And covenanted with them and them only. How could God, who could not look upon evil, cooperate with a people who had no consideration for him and no consideration for the humanity of others? They treated all other humankind like the lowliest of creatures, like fish in a barrel. One commentator noted here, he said, Habakkuk was having such a difficult time understanding God's response because the promise of Babylon did not move Judah closer to reconciliation with God. Instead, it actually moved them further away from him. He said, he wrote here, he said, it simply replaced one chaotic society, so lawless Judah, with one that was totally and completely godless. And so, moving into verse 16, we see he continues with that fishing image. And he says, therefore he, Babylon, he sacrifices to his net... And he makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, by his dragnet, by the nations he conquers, he lives in luxury. His food is rich. They sacrifice to themselves. He says, God, Lord, Yahweh, Babylon sacrificed to their conquest because their God is their might. And they eat upon the spoils of their conquest. They are getting fat and rich and bigger and more wealthy. Babylon lived by the plunder of the helpless nations that they conquered. But at the same time, he says here, and God's going to address this in a minute. Babylon also worshipped the things that was making them fat and rich 
and wealthy that they were plundering from the nations around them. And so in verse 17, Habakkuk says, If God is going to allow this even more wicked and unjust and powerless nation to rule, then Habakkuk's original question still applies all the way back in verse 2. If God, Lord, if you're going to allow them to do this, then for how long? How long will you, a holy, pure, righteous God who cannot look upon evil, how long are you going to remain silent and idle while this wickedness and this evil is perpetuated against your chosen people? He says, is he then to keep on emptying his net? Right? Is he going to be allowed to run rampant and continue to fill up his net and empty his net on every nation on the planet? Or is he then going to, is he then to keep on mercilessly killing nations forever? Surely, Lord, unending, pitiless murder cannot be your will. And so what Habakkuk does, he gripes, he complains, he, he's trying to make sense of God's response. And so what he does then here at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1, he resolves himself. He says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resolve myself to see the vision of how God will answer. And by doing this, what Habakkuk does is he illustrates for us a disposition that is willing to rest in God's sovereignty even if it does not fully comprehend God's purposes. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post, and I will station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. That last line is really funny to me because what he's, done, he's doing, he's already gearing himself up and working himself up to basically drive back. Right? He's saying, God, you can answer me, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it back to you. But at the same time, he, there's an understanding of retreat here. right? He's, he's, he's living among the muck and the wickedness of, of Judah, and he's complained to God. But now, you know what? I've complained. God has responded. I don't understand it, so what I need to do then is I need to retreat away from the normal ebb and flow of my regular daily life to properly hear from God. I'm going to go up on my watchtower. I'm going to position myself on the tower to see his vision and to hear from him. Really, we can't help but be reminded here of Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness where he retreats. Or Paul's three-year journey in Arabia after his conversion. He retreats, which I think tells us something vital when we have a question for God or really a complaint to God or we presume to gripe at God, sometimes it may seem as though God has been silent or idle and is not answering our prayers and our complaints. Or it may simply be that we have not put ourselves in the proper disposition to hear him actually answer us. God has promised to hear our prayers and to answer them. And even if he takes longer than we desire to answer He does hear and he does answer. And so Habakkuk's resolve here at the beginning of chapter 2 reminds us that sometimes we should probably also retreat to the watchtower and to wait and see how God will respond. Which is exactly what we do in the season of Lent. But it's also really kind of what we do every Sunday when we retreat from the world and we come into worship. This This is a weekly retreat. Even though it's the same place and we're not going to, you know, fancy retreat center or anything like that. We're retreating from the world to come and to hear from God through singing, through his psalms, through the liturgy, through the Eucharist. And so now that we have retreated as a church, let's approach God's second response to Habakkuk's complaint. 
And when, as we do this, we need to try to hear from the Lord in two ways. Because this is, this is the whole point of this, is we're trying to hear from God as we question him or complain to him. So we need to hear from him as he responds to Habakkuk, but also what he means for us as the church. And to do this, what we need to do is we actually kind of need to skip around a little bit. I think it's helpful if we skip around God's response here. But before we do that, listen to the whole thing one more time. God writes this. He answers Habakkuk and he says, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So starting here, just in the last verse, it starts with moreover there in your bulletin. Here, This is verse 5 of chapter 2. We see what God is really doing is he's stressing to Habakkuk that using Babylon as his means of judgment is only a temporary means of judgment. And here's how he describes it. He says that wine, or another way of translating the word wine there is wealth. So wine or wealth is a traitor. It's a traitor because the luxurious life, the acquisition of wealth and wine and possessions, this is a life that never satisfies. It always wants more. As he says here, it's never at rest. He says, it's like death in the grave. The Babylonians never have enough because their greed is as wide as Sheol. Basically, the Babylonians are going to continue to seek nations to devour and more captives to take away as slaves. Or to put it this way, God is telling Habakkuk, he said, Babylon is never going to find satisfaction. They could cover the whole earth in blood and still never be satisfied. But such, a, such an existence is completely destructive. Babylon is going to destroy itself. Now, Persia would take it over about, a, about 70 or so years later, but, well, less than that, really. But I had the date in my notes, then I took it out for some reason. But Persia would eventually take it over, but Babylon's greed is what destroys it. But in the meantime, Habakkuk is saying, okay, well, then what am I supposed to do? Well, God, what he does here, starting in verse 2, so backing up to to the beginning of that second paragraph there in your bulletin, God gives Habakkuk a commission. He says in verse 2, he says, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that the one who reads it may run, or so that he may run who reads it. So God's point here, he's straightforward. He's saying, okay, Babylon is coming, but here's what you need to do. You need to write this down, and you need to make it legible. You need to make it plain. Make it plain so that the one who reads it may run. This was all over the board in trying to figure out what this meant. So this could mean you're going to read about Babylon's destruction, right? They're coming. You need to understand it. You need to run away. You need to repent, and you need to flee, right? That's one way. Another way could be, I want you to make this plain so that way it's legible, it's understandable, and people can run from village to village in Judah and say, Habakkuk said God is sending Babylon. This is actually how the New Living Translation translates it. It says, you need to carry this message to others, is how it translates it. 
But it could also possibly mean that this message would just be easy to comprehend at a glance. Because God knows that the people are not going to listen to Habakkuk. They haven't listened to any of the other prophets. Why are they going to start now? But it needs to be comprehended at a glance. The message paraphrases it this way. It says, write it so that it can be read on the run. Calvin even understood it this way. He said, write it in large letters so that the writing will not cause the readers to stop. So he could be jogging down the roads of Jerusalem. I don't know if people jogged in that day. You know, I doubt they did. But if he was, he could read it, understand it, and keep on moving. To use a stupid modern comparison, God wanted this message to go viral in Judah. Right? He wanted everybody to know it. He didn't want them to be surprised when Babylon showed up. Even if they didn't believe his word, he wanted them to know it was coming. So he wanted Habakkuk to make it as plain and understandable by as many people as possible. Okay, I get that, right? So what am I supposed to write down? Well, even though judgment is coming, verse 4, you need to live by faith. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up, and it is not upright within him. But the righteous, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, this verse ought to sound familiar to every believer in the room. And if it doesn't, it's okay. But if it does, it should. Because this verse is the hallmark of all of Paul's theology. Every bit of it. Especially as it concerns the primacy of faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation. Paul quotes this twice. Unless you consider Paul the author of Hebrews, and he quotes it three times. But Paul quotes this twice. He quotes it in Romans 1.17 at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. So this is in regards to life by faith, and then he begins to describe life, right? But then also he quotes in Galatians 3 as it relates to the justification in Christ. And so what Paul does is Paul actually takes God's message to Habakkuk to its final emphasis as God had revealed it to him, start stating that those who are judged as righteous are done so as a result of their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's how we are righteous before God. We are righteous by faith in Christ. And so Habakkuk's questions and complaints really supply Paul with the beginning and ending point. Faith is the key to righteousness. This same passage, this same line, was also absolutely fundamental to Martin Luther's understanding of righteousness. He wrote that after reading this verse, particularly in Romans 1.17, Martin wrote this. He said, all at once I felt as if I had been born anew. Immediately, I saw the entirety of Scripture in a completely different light. And I exalted in this sweet word, justice. I exalted in it with as much love as I had hated it before with hate. This phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith, was for me the very gate of paradise. And so what God does here is he answers Habakkuk's complaint. He says, okay, Babylon is coming. I get you don't get it. But let me draw for you a contrast between two diametrically opposed attitudes towards me and the promises that I make. And so he first he describes the wicked. He says, behold, he who is puffed up, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. The Septuagint writes here, it says, he shrinks back. So this is someone who holds God as indifferent in their spirit. This is someone who relies on themselves that because their souls are inflated, they're puffed up, they lack both substance and stability. But the Septuagint also reads here in this verse, it says that it's actually God's soul that is not pleased with the one whose soul is puffed up. 
or the one who shrinks back. So these are those who, they give up. They, because they don't have any patience in God. They have no faith because, in their view, God took too long to accomplish his promises. But by contrast, in the second half of the verse, the righteous will live by faithfulness in God's promises. God says, don't be puffed up, don't shrink back from my promises, but instead be patient and live by faith. So the one who lives by faith is the one who has an attitude of loyalty to God and trusts in God's promises. This is the one who lives by faith. They patiently wait on God to act. So even through suffering or through trial or confusion or frustration or complaints or what might seem like God's idleness and silence, the righteous rest in God's sovereignty and they accept God's word of promise even in a world dominated by the wickedness of Babylon. Theodore Matuestio wrote here, he said that God defines a righteous person as one who trusts in his promises. And they trust that God will fulfill his promises and keep his promises. So for Habakkuk, these verses, or this verse in particular, answers all of his frustrations and answers his complaints to God's supposed idleness. Will God let the guilty go unpunished, whether that be the wicked of Judah or the wicked of Babylon? No. But when is he going to act? God tells him in verse 3, he says, even still, the vision awaits its appointed time. Meaning, a time for which God had determined by himself. Because God works from eternity and for eternity. Calvin writes here, he says, here God reproves our excessive impatience that takes hold of us when we are anxious for God to immediately accomplish what he has promised. He says we need to be patient and we need to await God's appointed time. But God also says, not only does it wait for my appointed time, but it will hasten to the end. It will not lie. Meaning Habakkuk and his hearers can be assured that this vision will be fulfilled. It's going to take place. It's going to happen. It's coming. But just in case, God also says, if it seems slow, though, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And so what these two clauses here at the end of verse 3, they teach us, they teach us that we should be absolutely so convinced in the certainty of what God promises that we can actually move forward in the knowledge that what he has promised us, we already possess it. Calvin wrote here, he said that this expresses the true character of faith that the righteous live by. But it's also here where this text gets really fun because it rises above Habakkuk's context and it warp speeds its way to us in the church because there is a very Holy Spirit-inspired Christological understanding, not only to verse 4, but to verse 3. And we should not miss this because these two verses point us to the promise of our lives hidden in the Lord Jesus that we saw in Colossians 3 a few weeks ago. Those of us who have died in Christ, our lives are hidden with Christ in God so that when he appears, we will appear with him. This is a promise that hastens to the end. It will not lie. The Septuagint is a lot more helpful, especially here in verse 3, and also when it comes to this Christological understanding because it reads this. It says, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If he should tarry, wait for him. For he will surely come. The author of Hebrews explicitly understood it this way because he was using the Septuagint. 
And he refers to Christ here. He quotes verses 3 and 4 in Hebrews 10 as he reminds the church to endure boldly as we await the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. So this is an encouragement for us when we are tempted to be impatient with the fulfillment of God's promises. Or when we are tempted to gripe and complain to him. Because the world mocks the church. The world mocks the believer for its hope in the return of Christ. But God promises us here that if, if Christ should tarry, we should wait for him. Because he will surely come. It hastens. As the Lord himself proclaims at the end of Revelation, he says, Yes, surely I am coming and I am coming soon. Augustine wrote in the City of God on this verse, he said, Of what else other than the advent of Christ could be understood by this verse? So write the vision. This vision, this revelation, it focuses our attention on the trustworthiness of our God. But it also reminds us that God works from eternity and for eternity. He sets things according to his purposes. And so, though his revelation and deliverance may appear to take an agonizingly long time, we should still faithfully wait for it because it will surely come. It will hasten. It will not delay. And so what does God have for us in this text? Or what does he expect from the church? So I was thinking about this this week. Last week, as we were finishing up, I I made the comment that what do we do with this? And I realized that's a bad way of looking at this. I don't care what we should do with this. What does God actually want from us from this? And so that's, that's how I wanted to approach this. What does God want from us? I think it's verse 4. Live by faith. And rest in the promise that Christ has not only come, but that Christ will come again. And so his command here in verse 4 that the righteous will live by his faith, this is how we begin to approach God with our questions and our complaints. Because we do it through humility and repentance and rest, but we are only able to do it through righteousness, and our righteousness only comes from Christ himself. And so as we come to the table, here's your application question. Have you been resting in the sovereignty of God and trusting in his guaranteed promises of Christ, in Christ? And then if not, as you come and you take the bread and the wine, as you partake of the body and the blood of Christ, humble yourself and repent and live by faith. Because God, who has called you in Christ, is himself faithful. And if his promises seem slow, be patient and wait. Because he will surely do it, Paul tells us in Thessalonians. His promises do not lie, and they will not delay. Thanks be to God.